Before we dive into this episode of HRD Masterclass, I'd like to take 30 seconds to share the exciting news that we're now seeking sponsors for Season 5 to release in 2024. This is a wonderful opportunity to support the podcast series and also share your message with 3,500 HRD listeners around the world. Sponsorship options cost just $750 and $600 per episode, and for full details, contact D-A-R-R-E-N at allbypodcast.com. Right, let's start the episode. There are power differentials, power structures present and really, really firmly placed in every aspect of our society and our workplaces. Welcome to the Human Resource Development Masterclass, the new podcast series from the Academy of Human Resource Development, the organization that leads HRD through research. I'm your host, Darren Short, and throughout this first series of 10 episodes, I'll be joined by leading authors, researchers, and scholars to explore the fundamentals of HRD and how those are changing in the 2020s. Our focus for this episode is critical human resource development. We'll be focusing on what we mean by critical HRD, sharing examples of critical HRD in action, and suggesting how you can examine your own HRD practices from a critical perspective. To help me, I'll be joined by three leading scholars. Dr. Laura Beamer of the University of Georgia in the United States, Dr. Carol Elliott of the University of Sheffield in the United Kingdom, and Dr. Tamika Greer of the University of Houston in the United States. In the first part of the episode, I'll chat one-to-one with each of them. And then for the second part, Laura, Carol and Tamika are together to explore their shared interest in critical HRD. That discussion is brought to you with the help of the generous support of our sponsor, Interpretive Simulations. Find out more about their services at interpretive.com. All of the content you'll hear in this episode was recorded during March and April of 2021. Right, let's dive in to meet my first guest. My first guest today is Dr. Laura Beamer, Professor in the College of Education in the University of Georgia's Program of Adult Learning, Leadership and Organization Development. Laura's research interests include workplace learning, career development, women's development, organization development, executive coaching, leadership, and critical HRD. Laura holds both bachelor's and master's degrees from Michigan State University and a doctorate in adult education from the University of Georgia. She has over 160 publications, including 10 books and the award-winning text, Adult Learning, Linking Theory and Practice, with Dr. Sharon B. Merriam. Laura served as Associate Dean for Academic Programs in the UGA College of Education from 2013 to 2017, and is currently the President of the Academy of Human Resource Development. Hi, Laura. Welcome to the HRD Masterclass podcast. It's great that you're able to join me to kick off our exploration of critical HRD. Now, I'd love to start by asking what HRD is to you and how critical HRD fits into your view of HRD as a subject and profession. Thanks, Darren. It's really a pleasure to be here speaking about HRD and critical HRD. 
I think for me, HRD and somewhere early in my career, I wrote that it was really explained by being the holy trinity of HRD, which is training or learning and development, organization development, and career development. And I have spent my career focusing broadly on those three areas. I think though, when you add critical to the mix, it's not enough just to to work in those three domains. I think you also have to pay attention to social inequities and injustices that are occurring in the organization and make sure that the work of HRD is equitable and just, and that it creates what I like to think of as humanly sustainable organizations where all of the stakeholders benefit and certainly the workers thrive, uh, that the organization thrives so that there's income, there's job satisfaction, there's opportunities to learn and grow and advance. So It may be an idealistic view of organizations, but research has actually shown that companies that are committed to human sustainability actually perform better. And although, unfortunately, most CEOs are not willing to take the risk to do that, as crazy as it sounds, it's just safer to perpetuate toxic workplaces. So I am definitely committed to creating non-toxic and humanly sustainable workplaces through critical HRD. As you were talking in, in, uh, in answer to the first question, I, I was typing down questions that was flowing from me. And one of those questions was, yeah, how would you define a humanly sustainable organization? And then once it's defined, how does HRD in practice help create one? Well, when we think about what is a humanly sustainable organization, if you really had to boil it down to a nice definition, it's creating a workplace where people can thrive. And that means not just financially, but I think, you know, physically, mentally, and spiritually, and that they don't burn out from toxicity, but they actually are growing and learning and contributing. But let's think for a minute about what a sustainable organization is not. And what is Fascinating to me is that you can go to any organizations, especially corporations, website, and usually they will tout their environmental sustainability. And they will also celebrate their economic sustainability. But what is often missing or not spoken about is the human sustainability, even though in the next breath, they might tell you that people are their most valuable resource. So I I think that it is maybe an aspirational goal, but not one that's articulated. Now, I I do think it's also interesting that CEOs and other executives and organizations often are held accountable for environmental and financial sustainability or the lack thereof, but we don't usually apply the same level of expectation for human sustainability. And, And the work of Jeffrey Pfeffer in his 2018 book, Dying for a Paycheck, used some pretty extensive research to identify workplace vulnerabilities that could lead to death. And in fact, he equated that 120,000 excess deaths per year occur in the United States, costing the health system over $300 billion annually because of toxicity and the lack of human sustainability. So I won't run down all of the 10, but 
as you might not be surprised, the first one is un being unemployed and the second one is lacking health insurance. I wonder if now is the right time to start digging into the like the HRD piece in terms of what you know what you see as being some of the practical steps HRD can take to help an organization towards becoming you know humanly sustainable. I was really encouraged back in I believe it was 2019 when the New York Times published an article with the headline shareholder value is no longer everything according to top CEOs or something like that, where several top leaders of like Apple and JP Morgan Chase and Amazon, et cetera, signed a pledge that they would not only be holden to shareholder value. And in my own writing, and certainly other people who think about human sustainability, talk about stakeholders. And so I, I think we have to switch our mindset away from shareholder value as being primary to also including stakeholders, which are not necessarily people who hold only the economic interest, but others who have the environmental interest and certainly the human interest in organizations. And to me, if HR is not concerned about that, then nobody is going to be. So I feel that if our field is not worried about issues of injustice and lack of sustainability and inequity, I, I really don't expect other functions to make that a priority. So I think it absolutely is the most important work that we do in our field. I, I'm wondering to what extent having leadership on board, senior leadership like the CEO or the board, to what extent that's a prerequisite to make for HRD making any progress in this area? I.e., is it a case that you need senior leadership to at least be open to this for HRD to move it forward? Or, or is there something HRD could be doing even when senior leadership appears to be um, either ignorant of the topic or alternatively just not willing to even address mm -hmm. it? Yes, well, certainly having a senior leadership that is supportive and enthusiastic about creating human sustainability would be the easiest route. I also know from my own time in corporate America and work in any organization that that is often not the case. And I do see the role of HR as having to sometimes educate. And of course, as an executive coach, I'm also going to say coach. And because I am also a critical scholar and practitioner, I think HR also has a responsibility to disrupt practices that, that are hurtful. And yet, I also know you may want to be a disruptor, but you also want to keep your job. So how do you do all of those things? And I think from a more practical standpoint is to think about making what I like to think of as critical interventions. Most people who are trained in HR and HRD know about classical interventions we would do in organization development. And in fact, we do interventions around training and development and career development and making change all the time. And so certainly having all of those interventions in your back pocket is important. But when you start thinking about trying to really create change, I do think you have to be more strategic more critical of what's going on around you and sometimes stealthy. So 
I do think that an intervention that I would consider to be focused on sustainability, human sustainability from a critical HRD perspective would be concerned with enhancing organizational sustainability or well-being, that, that that's the first thing. It's not environmental or economic or some other you know, pr- production-oriented value, and that it intends to, in some way, disrupt the status quo or challenge prevailing power relations. And I think that would be true in the case where management wasn't receptive or aware that we needed to be paying attention to sustainability. And the final thing is, I think there has to be a willingness to take some risks and work for democracy and equitable practices, that idea of justice and inclusion that helps make the organization more sustainable. So that's sort of the mindset I think that people have to use. And then I won't go through all of them, but there are interventions which I think can be critical. And sometimes it's as simple as asking a good question. So it's not, again, like you're going to stand up and hold a protest at, at the doorstep of your organization, but that you're going to ask questions. And so some of the work of Deborah Meyerson around small wins and opportunistic interventions where you would perhaps just ask a question or make a suggestion that turns into a change. And an example that she uses is um, around recycling, which is an environmental challenge, but where an employee noticed that there were there was no recycling going on in the organization. And by simply asking in the lunchroom if they could put one recycling bin and that was agreed to, then what happened is it started to create awareness. And in a few months, there were recycling bins everywhere. So, so it, it's not like you're burning down the house necessarily, but asking good questions or taking more critical action and challenging. Sometimes it's finding allies in the organization and building alliances and networks to start to work for change. So I think it can be top down or bottom up or somewhere in between, but it does require a more of a critical orientation. She sounds somewhat empowering, doesn't it? A sort of, uh, yeah. if you're willing to <laughs> grasp that, and like you say, like walk that path between um, um, being critical and challenging, but also keeping your job. But if you're able to, and I would assume asking questions is a good way of doing that, because it's not as if, like you say, it's not as if you're picketing at the uh, front door. It's more mm-hmm. a case that you are, you're the one that's willing to put your head above the parapet and ask the difficult question. Mm-hmm. Indeed. And I guess this is when my dual identities as an adult educator and as a human resource developer come into play because you are wanting to encourage reflection and ask people, what assumptions are we working under as we make these decisions? Or do we know if the people we're trying to recruit and retain are actually having access to mentoring or the training and development opportunities that the people who keep getting promoted are? So Again, I'm not suggesting burning down the house at all. However, some research that I did many years ago with Tara Fenwick back in 2008, we did this study in U.S. and Canadian companies that were publicly committed to corporate social responsibility. And this was, first of all, a very unloved study because we had a hard time publishing it because I just don't think at the time it was at all in the purview of human resources that we should be thinking about social responsibility or sustainability. But what we did is we 
contacted these Canadian and American companies that were publicly committed to social responsibility, and we asked to talk to their top HR person. And in every instance except one, we were referred to public relations and or marketing. And it was a tussle to try to even get to the the HR people because they just didn't see it as relevant to their work. And so I think that was a key finding of that study was that, and this was over a decade ago, at least more than that, that HR just didn't see any kind of social responsibility or sustainability in their purview. And yet we are recruiting and hiring and training people to implement these policies. So I thought it was an interesting finding and more recent research uh, that has been done by De Stefano at, at all found that the integration of HR and corporate social responsibility is still scarce. And so we are still letting it land on the desk of the public relations department rather than thinking about how we might green and make our own work more sustainable and responsible. It's interesting when you think that was like 12 years ago uh, or Mm -hmm. 13 years ago. And um, uh, in some respects, there's been a a lot of change. In other respects, probably very little. And so what I was wondering, like in reaction to what you were just talking about, like the work with Tara, for example, do you get a sense, like, you know, given the, the fact that social injustice has been under the microscope so much in society over the last year, Mm-hmm. Do you think that's changed the way that organizations are thinking and acting about it? Uh, as in, it w- would it be easier now to start tackling steps towards a humanly sustainable organization in light of the climate that we're now in on social injustice? Oh, gosh, I hope so, Darren. You know, I think of the work of Marilyn Bird, who was really the first person to advocate for socially just HRD. And she defines social injustice as an overt or covert act of behavior that demeans or degrades, uh, that's based in social identity and maintaining marginalized positions in society. And I think that the murders of Blacks at the hands of police and, of course, cold-blooded murders of Asian women in Atlanta you know, acts of domestic terrorism are really disturbing. And so I, I have a couple of trains of thought about this. First of all, my, my friends who do a lot of diversity training have said they, they're getting a lot of calls and people want diversity training and they want it now. And I am a huge advocate for education around diversity and such. However, there's also a lot of evidence to show that when done poorly, it actually makes things worse. And in this instance, and let's just take racism, for example, if leaders haven't done learning to be anti-racist, and I'm particularly speaking about white leaders in in this regard, uh, who are privileged in at least the United States context, um, then, then I think it's really hard to genuinely and authentically lead an organization. And sometimes leaders make mistakes or they upset people. And I do think that if you aren't willing to engage in the learning and have the conversations and make mistakes and apologize and learn from them and go forward, then it's really difficult. 
And when you get egos of leaders and also who've been conditioned to have the right answers and make the right decisions, I think it is a challenge for them to be vulnerable and admit, I don't know what to do here. Another friend of mine said that right after the George Floyd murders, and he's a coach, that his phone started ringing off the hook from CEOs and other C-suite executives wanting to know what to do. And so I do think our leadership programs and executive development programs, if we're thinking about that level, don't get prepared or good training in how to create humanly sustainable organizations. And so I have a fervent hope that we're at a tipping point. I also think the pandemic has really sorted leaders and helped us see who is truly transformational. And I think I'm, I'm hopeful that those are the leaders that rise on the other side of the pandemic. Yes, I, I, I know what you mean. I'm, I'm hoping that too. I think it'll be interesting as organizations get the other side of COVID and the pandemic. And it'll be interesting to see how organizations at that point choose to either create a new normal or alternatively, some may even consider going back to the way things used to be. And I sincerely hope that's not the case for most organizations. Okay, so for the final question, what I'd love to do is to take this down to the individual level and get your recommendation on what actions individuals can be taking in response to what we've just been talking about for the last 15, 20 minutes. The challenge really is for everyone listening to ask that question about how am I contributing to a humanly sustainable organization or household or workplace or community? And if you can't answer that question, then perhaps the next question is, how can I do better at being that person who's going to make my life and work more humanly sustainable? And I'm hoping that everyone who's engaged in this work of HRD is asking themselves those critical questions. Critical HRD is is not a obscure theoretical exercise where you sit around and critique everything. Um, As Martha Graham said, you know, no one ever raised a statue to a critic. I think it's getting in there and doing the hard work of trying to make the world a healthier place that champions well-being as much as it does other things. So that's my challenge to those of you listening. Well, thank you so much, Laura. I really hope that folks listening take on that challenge and think about what actions they can be taking from a critical perspective. Okay, well, that wraps up our opening segment with Laura. And I'm delighted to say that she'll be back later in the episode when Laura will be chatting with my other two guests who are Carol Elliott and Tamika Greer. So thank you so much, Laura. And I look forward to chatting with you later in the episode. My second guest for the episode is Dr. Carol Elliott, Professor of Organization Studies in the Management School at the University of Sheffield. Carol's research interests lie at the intersection of critical HRD, management and leadership learning, and organization studies. She's the former editor-in-chief of Human Resource Development International, and she recently received the Laura Beamer Excellence in Critical HRD Award from the Academy of Human Resource Development. 
Her book, Critical Thinking in HRD, co-edited with Dr. Sharon Turnbull, was one of the first texts to introduce critical theory to HRD. I'd like to welcome Carol to the HRD Masterclass podcast. It's great to have you here on our episode that's focused on critical HRD. Well, thank you, Darren, and thank you for inviting me. And I'm very grateful for, for this initiative that is being launched by the HRD. I think it's a fantastic thing to do. Well, there's lots of places where we could start our conversation. And what I'm thinking is we've just heard from Laura in terms of her call to action as she wrapped up her piece. And her call to action was inviting individuals to become more critical in their work. So I'd love to start with you around what that actually means in practice. So how does somebody approach HRD from a critical perspective? First of all, for me, it means having a curiosity and openness towards understanding how we can do things in a more equitable way. And in doing that, that would then lead to uh, organisations that are more socially and environmentally sustainable workplaces, which then links to our communities and our societies, which is quite a broad definition. I understand that it's quite a broad perspective, but for me, we can't disentangle these things from each other. Our workplaces arguably are microcosms of our communities, of our societies, of our nations. So... For me, it's keeping these things in balance. It's like juggling loads of balls at the same time. But the core thing, I think, if you're taking this critical perspective to HRD, is maintaining, trying to maintain that curiosity and openness and sometimes just trusting your gut when something doesn't quite feel right, something doesn't look right, or you feel uncomfortable in a certain situation. You feel uncomfortable facilitating that session in the way that you've done it previously and that uh, that discomfort can come through the responses of participants or it might come through what's happening at a social level at a societal level it's almost as if when we join an organization at the start of our careers we it's almost as if that organization in many respects sort of discourages critical it's like organizational cultures get individuals to come in and fit in what i'm wondering is how somebody learns to become critical or sort of develops that that muscle i think it is extremely difficult when you're new to an organization when you're becoming accustomed to that culture how people do things around here there's the formal culture and the informal culture and perhaps that's actually a starting point understanding what the difference is between the informal and the informal in your organization. That's the kind of activity many of us who, who work with uh, agents of change or people who just have an interest in learning and development will we'll focus on in, in sessions that we, when we're talking about OD or OD and change, that very, that very real difference we've seen between formal and informal cultures. So if you're in that entry level position, you're that first person in, you know, you've been in that organization for a short length of time. It's your first job out of college or you know, you've only been working five years. You're into a new position. Sometimes it is trusting your instinct about what is happening. And if you're if you're even thinking about a critical perspective, I think you have an interest in uh, equality and equitable workplaces and organizations. So sometimes the first step might just be trying to work out yourself what's going on. But I think that's a. Uh, that's a good step to take in order to have more confidence in 
realizing that what you're noticing isn't just, oh, it's just happening to me, or it's just happening to people who look like me. Actually, this is a wider phenomenon in the organization that means that certain people get promoted and other people are less likely to get promoted, even if they're achieving, yeah, doing their jobs in, in a similar fashion and, and achieving great results for the organization. So presumably, like when I think in terms of somebody new to the profession, and so let, let's pick a scenario, let, let's think mm -hmm. in terms of somebody facilitating a leadership yeah. development class. I would imagine one possible scenario that starts triggering, you know, critical thinking would be they're in the classroom, they look around and they see that a disproportionate number of people from a certain population that appears to get put into leadership development classes. From your experience, is that sort of where a critical perspective can start for somebody? I think that they see that and that's the moment where they have to decide, am I going to am I going to say something? And if so, what am I going to say and who do I say it to? Yeah, I think that could be that's a very good example of that critical, that aha moment that somebody might have and noticing what's happening. And one way to approach that for that facilitator, that train in that particular situation, you're trying to, you know, you've been running this leadership development program, the same kind of program over a number of months or, or a year, whatever it might be, then you might think, you might think, well, what, are, what, are, what does the organization say about its aims and objectives about equality, diversity and inclusion? What, what are we saying publicly about how we develop our leaders, about how we, you know, we welcome people from all sorts of different backgrounds? Because the, there might well be a disjuncture between those two things. And then that could be something that you speak about to colleagues, people you trust initially. It might be something then you speak about to, to your your manager or to the HRD, the person who sits on the board of directors and it has responsibility for HR or HRD. So you can draw attention to these discrepancies, these, um, what, do we, what shall we call it, these uh, contradictions that many, most organizations have some contradictions somewhere. So I think being, being critical, something perhaps I should have said at the start, but sometimes when they hear the word critical, they think, oh, you're just, you're just being nasty about everything or you're just, you're <laughs> yes. just but it's actually it's for me it's being quite construct it's being constructive and it's just looking for alternatives and just trying our best to do things in a better way that uh, leads to more equality and leads to um, people feeling more welcome in the workplace and more uh, making sure you know our values match those of the organization in which we work and, and assessing those on a fairly regular basis. It sounds like when you think about the important things to consider when approaching HRD from a critical perspective that one is deciding when to say something. So being open to, to seeing what's around you and then deciding what to raise. And then another important piece would be deciding how best to raise it. Another thing that I would uh, consider, particularly in the scenario we've just spoken about, will be to, to make those cross-industry comparisons. It's also important, I think, to get a broad range of views um, by reading, reading some literature. So reading some of our wonderful journals, for example, or, you know, there are some great um, more practitioner focused uh, books that are out there as well that can also be helpful. Uh, looking at industry um, guidelines, uh, there's some consultancies. My interest is gender, gender and leadership in, uh, specifically. 
And if you look at something in the US, like the Catalyst Organization, keep an eye on what's happening in terms of inequalities, uh, gender inequality within organizations. So they could be a good source. So there's lots of areas that you could venture into, but I think taking in that critical perspective does that openness and curiosity for me also requires some further reading around uh, the phenomenon, phenomenon that you're experiencing. And that I think can be quite, um, it might not be something that you necessarily enjoy or it might not be the answer that somebody wants to hear, but I think it also, it can be reassuring to find out, oh, it's not just me who's thinking this. It's not just me who's feeling a bit uncomfortable about this situation that I'm facing and that I'm trying to facilitate. It sounds like um, having a good network and maybe mm -hmm. having some strong mentors are both helpful in terms of developing the the critical muscle, uh, particularly if you are like in a small organization or you're uh, the only HRD professional in that organization. So, so being being selective over your network and your mentors and potentially looking out for people who are strong from a critical perspective and making sure you've got some of those folks in your professional network. Absolutely. No, I think that that's, that's crucial because as you say, those people who are in a small organization, they're the only person there having those mentors, those people who you can have that good conversation with to discuss issues that you are facing to realize, oh, it's not just me or it's not just our organization this is happening in. This is part of a broader pattern. So I think that can be really helpful in developing that critical awareness, getting, becoming aware of the broader patterns in across societies and organizations. And, and you can get, obviously you can get some great ideas at a very, um, almost a mundane level about how to approach something in a classroom situation, in a training environment. But I think it's also a way of um, gaining confidence. It can be a way of swapping ideas and it can be uh, a, a source of reassurance to realize that what you are observing, what you're witnessing in terms of contradictions that might be happening in the organization, the, the formal and informal power structures that are influencing how your people, how the people show up to your training event which, which can happen is not it's not just you it's not just about your organization but it's it's part of a broader phenomenon that's happening in society yeah yeah that makes sense now but we talked a lot about practice and I, I know earlier in the conversation you talked about journals as being one source of help uh, when mm -hmm. somebody's looking for uh, guidance on on a particular situation um, and of course, what goes into those journals is coming out of researchers. So I'd love to dig a little into the research piece of this. And I suppose it could be academic research. It could be action research that's happening in an organizational setting. But I'd be interested in your perspective on um, what advice you might give to somebody who's interested in taking a critical HRD, uh, a critical HRD approach in, in their research. So if I think about uh, my research area or one of my research areas of gender and leadership learning and development, if I tell the story about how I got into this field, as it were, and it, it was partly through that, uh, that interest. And that was prompted, my critical, um, my critical uh, antennae were, were started twitching when I saw 
those, you know, those reports that come out every year about uh, the number of women CEOs as opposed to the number of women employees in any organization. I mentioned the Catalyst organization, their report last year, for example, tells us on that on the S&P 500 uh, group of companies, we have in those companies about 44, nearly 45% of employees are women, but only 5% are CEOs. So something's happening here. There's some in the pipeline, what, what's, what's happening. Um, clearly, you know, that we have almost equitable numbers of women and men in higher education. So that that's working. Um, what's going on in organizations consistently for decades, despite legislation that leads to these discrepancies, these disparities between the women, number of women in the organization, and the number of women leaders. And so then we look at uh, HRD programs, leadership development programs in organizations, and we see, see what's happening there. And a lot of literature, a lot of the research, there's been a lot of research on women in leadership and gender and leadership. And a lot of that research over say 30 years or so has focused on making women better. So it's women who have to do things differently. They have to speak up more. They have to ask for pay rises. They have to ask to be promoted. So it's like, fix the women and then, then it'll be fine. So we've been having these leadership development programs for women for a number of years now, but yet we still <laughs> see so few women as chief executives or even on the, you know, I think only 11% of women are board of directors in these S&P 500 companies. So it's not just about fixing women. <laughs> so if we run a leadership development program for women, it, it, I absolutely believe there is a place for women-only leadership development programs, but we need they're clearly not the sole solution. There are other things occurring that are preventing women from uh, achieving positions of power. So that was a very long answer, and I'm not sure whether I really answered the question. But... You did, you did, because it, 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 it leads me into thinking about the role of research in understanding what we're seeing. So what's the role of research in understanding why something is happening? And then it also starts to take me beyond that into what is the role of research in then moving us forward? So not just understanding why something is happening, but actually solving that problem. Yeah. And, and do you see critical HRD researchers as playing both of those roles, the understanding and the solving? Definitely, definitely. I see. I think we have to have both. I think they work in tandem. Uh, we have to understand before we can solve, because if we don't understand, we just make we can make the same mistakes again or repeat or make it worse. Possibly we need to really dig deep in many instances, in many scenarios and to gain that understanding and to use different lenses to to use as our focal point by which to examine things that are going on to achieve a, achieve a better understanding. And if I was to talk about a direction for critical HRD, now we've established a really good foundation for it in the field. That would be for me the, the next real mission, the next real focus to, to, to do things differently, to take action and to be very explicit about how we're doing that. And I would imagine that at that point, partnerships between researchers and organizations becomes critical because if you have a researcher who has 
looked at what's happening and why it's happening and then has ideas on how to solve it. That researcher then presumably needs to be in partnership with an organization mm -hmm. who is willing to implement those ideas and let the researcher uh, track the impact and then report mm -hmm. that back. Yeah. So I, I would imagine then research practice partnerships become critical at that point. Yeah, no, that, that's an excellent idea, Darren. And uh, I think that is, that is, that would be, if we could do that, and if, you know, we could find the money to do that, because we know the kind of all the institution, boring institutional problems we have to face in doing that. But I think, you know, that almost when you spoke there, I was thinking, you know, about the action research model that I still love and action learning. And I think that is still great. And it that does, you know, go through these different cycles. And I think, if we could facilitate that, that would be that would be so fantastic. And um, developing those partnerships, and yeah, perhaps that is an agenda we can actually work on. I think as an academy and with our fellow um, professional organisations across the world, that would be um, a great uh, a great agenda to work on. And to it, um, it will happen. I'm sure it's happening uh, in small pockets, but perhaps we need to think more clear clearly and cleverly about how we expand on that and how we um, you know, really make that happen. So we do have this, so critical HRD does have this influence and takes on this action role. It's probably time for us to, to start wrapping up, but I, uh, I can't wrap up without asking one more question okay. because um, like Laura sort of wrapped up with a call to action. Um, and I think, our conversation has started to get me down to a level of specifics as to where that action might be focused. And mm -hmm. so um, I'd be really interested as a closing thought from you around what challenges you can see the HRD face right, faces right now, where you feel as if critical HRD can really provide an insight. So if, if Laura's given a call to action, what would be the challenges that individuals should focus on right now? For me, it's um, the challenges are to, um, to dig deep, both uh, theoretically, uh, but also um, uh, practice-wise to, it, it's, it's easy to say this here from the comfort of my office in my own home, but to, yeah to work with, uh, engage with other communities, because this idea of, you know, scholars, practitioners working together in particular organizational settings, I think we could expand that to communities as well. So, you know, different, um, different stakeholders become involved. So the challenge for us as critical HRD scholars is to start developing those stakeholder relationships so that we can bring our insights into a much wider variety of uh, organized spaces, which might be the workplace, but they might be community organizations, they might be even political organizations, but different types of organized spaces. And I think if we are working towards our goal or one of our goals, one of our missions is to create these more equitable, socially envi and environmentally sustainable organizations and societies and communities, this is the direction we have to go in. Excellent. Well, Carol, thank you so much indeed for our time. It's been fantastic having the conversation with you. And um, I'm looking forward to uh, talking of, um, of uh, 
communities and the group discussions the fact that we'll be having a conversation shortly with laura and with tamika so thank you very much for our one-to-one and i'm looking forward to being back with you with uh, laura and tamika later in the episode thank you darren i've really enjoyed our conversation it's been very thought-provoking My third guest for the episode is Dr. Tamika Greer, who resides in Houston, Texas, where she teaches and conducts research in HRD at the University of Houston. She has extensive experience in corporate training, learning, and development across several industries. In her research, Tamika uses a social justice lens to study post-secondary education and training, job transitions, and work-life integration in order to help women and marginalized groups manage and develop thriving and sustainable careers. Her research appears in prominent journals and conference proceedings within the HRD, adult education, psychology, and management fields. Tamika was elected to the Academy of Human Resource Development Board of Directors in 2018 and is currently serving a second term. Hi, Tamika. Welcome to the HRD Masterclass podcast. It's great to have you here in our episode focused on critical HRD. Hi, Darren. I am super excited to be here and talk with you today. You know, we've just heard from Laura and Carol about their perspectives on critical HRD. So I'm thinking that a good place to start would be to ask you what critical HRD means to you. Essentially, what is critical HRD? So I kind of want to start back when I was a graduate student working on my doctoral degree in HRD, uh, say around 2008, 2009. And I was introduced to the concept of critical HRD in a classroom. And so what I took away from that was that there was kind of this almost a victim mentality, victim mindset associated with critical HRD. And I, and I didn't really want to have anything to do with that, that perspective of HRD. I was much more entertained by other ways of looking at HRD. And what really changed the way I understood and saw and have now implemented critical HRD was when I attended my first AHRD conference in 2009. I actually met you there. I don't know if you remember that. But during that conference, I went to a lot of sessions that were focused on critical HRD. And what I really took away from that was that it's not so much about, you know, certain people are victimized by the system as it is that in all cases, we need to be challenging the status quo. So it's never enough to just say we're doing this because this is how we do it. It is always critical. (laughs) Um, to look at each decision, expose what assumptions and underlying thoughts are um, associated with that decision and to challenge it. If it's just because this is the status quo, well, let's think about, are there ways that we can do this better? And are there ways that we can contextualize this better for the situation that we're in? And I took that challenging the status quo mindset away from that early conference. And since then, I'm recognizing that um, critical HRD is about understanding, recognizing, and dismantling um, power structures that are unfair and inequitable 
and ultimately working towards this social justice um, ideal where we have equitable treatment of all people um, in the workplace as well as in our larger society. It's interesting as you as you talk through that, it's clear that there is a like an attitude that's behind critical HRD. I'm going to keep my my eyes open. I'm going to look. I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to challenge that sort of attitude. How does somebody develop that? Yeah. So I think understanding that the ultimate goal of critical HRD is to uh, to make change um, and to to perform actions that are um, bettering our environment or our context that we're in. And so for me, critical HRD is, is not what you do, right? This is kind of what you were saying. It's, it's really who you are. And in my case, it's who I became. So I honestly believe there are some people that are literally born <laughs> with a critical perspective that can be so utilized in the workplace and in society to help um, emancipate other people. Um, but for me, it is who I had to become. And so one thing is that, you can't assume neutrality in anything. And, and I have an example of that. A couple of nights ago, my husband was watching the NCAA basketball tournament. And since we're currently in this COVID context, there wasn't a crowd. There wasn't a crowd. It wasn't quote unquote on the higher seed home floor. And so he said to me, he said, man, being at the neutral site actually advantages the underdog. Right. So think about that. We've moved these basketball games to a site that's supposed to be, quote unquote, neutral. There's no such thing as neutral. So I think the first thing in becoming critical is to not assume neutrality. That goes for HR policies. That goes for any of the processes and systems that we have traditionally held in place. And then another thing that I think is important in developing as a in, in critical HRD is a question that Jamie Callahan asked, I think it was in a 2007 publication, and she said, whose interests are being served, you know, in any given HRD intervention? And so when you ask the question of whose interests are being served, that is the moment when you recognize who in this situation would be underserved, who in this situation would be disadvantaged, and who in this situation would be marginalized. And, and that is one of your first steps to growing in critical HRD. How much of that comes back to the issue of power and who holds it and who's trying to get it? Mm -hmm. So, in all honesty, I think that is one of the basic building blocks of the critical HRD perspective is that there are power differentials, power structures present and really, really firmly placed in every aspect of our society and our workplaces. And so those people who have the power and are in power to make decisions, to, to implement policies and programs and, and you know, dictate processes, those people, why would they not try to hold on to that power, right? So 
even when a person in power says, oh, you know, this is a, a neutral policy, right? This will benefit all our employees. There are still people in the corners who don't have the power to say, actually, this doesn't work for people that work in my department, or this doesn't work for people who look like me. Um, and so when you have the people in power saying, hey, look at this, we've done a good thing. And then you have people who have a lower power status, who cannot say this actually doesn't work for me, then we end up in this situation where those who become the underserved, the disadvantaged, the marginalized, and the people in power remain in power. As you talk through that, it, it makes me think about how HRD, of course, is part of a much broader system within an organization like one of the systems it's part of is the hr system for example and you think about all of the human resources processes that exist around recruiting and selection and performance management and comp and ben and rewards and so hrd is sort of part of that system so i'd be interested to explore with you just kind of how inequities show up across that whole HR system of which yes. HRD is a part. So, so really, I guess the, the employee process really starts with uh, that recruitment piece. And there, there's a lot in recruitment that serves to basically perpetuate the status quo, honestly. Um, I remember, you know, in the days when I was coming out of college, let's say, and moving into organizations, like the same organizations came to my school every year. That's kind of where they sought their talent. It was like their source. And that is problematic. If an organization continually goes to the same source for their candidates, then the organization starts to look very homogenous. Um, people start to look a lot like each other. And so when you think about, let's say, the recruitment process from a critical HRD perspective, you have to move out of your networks of comfort, um, your, your schools, let's say if you're doing collegiate recruitment, move out of those schools that you're just used to going to and broaden that perspective. Because what, what we're not going to be able to do is create a diverse and equitable um, workforce if we're not broadening where we seek our talent to begin with. And so we have to break some of those structures just in order to, to broaden our perspectives on who we recruit. Um, so that's an, an example from recruitment. And then selection, at, like recently, there's been kind of a push for this idea of like blinding resumes. And that could be problematic in that, you know, it's a, there you go again with a presumably solution that, you know, seems like it would neutralize everything. But in honesty, you're probably just delaying the inevitable because ultimately, let's say you, you have a blind resume, you've selected that person, we're just scooting the bias down the road a little bit, right? Yeah. Um, and so again, it's it's this idea of being open, even in the selection process, to different perspectives, different people. One thing that we hear also in selection is this idea of whether or not a person is a good fit or not. And really, that's just code for, is this person like me? 
and can I get along with them or not? Right. Yeah. And, and that's not from critical HRD's perspective. That's not where we want to be. Now the, your answer there sort of highlights the multifaceted causes of, of inequity because it sort of highlights the fact that it's being generated by processes and by potentially tools and systems and by the people. And when you put all of that together, the output is, is an inequity. Yes. And to your point, no process is neutral. Yeah. Right. And it is our job as critical HRD practitioners and researchers to expose that, to challenge the underlying assumptions, challenge the status quo and recognize that, hey, this process has some issues. Now, are we going to create a perfect process? Never. But when we have uh, professionals in place who recognize that there's no such thing as a neutral process, then we have the ability to compensate as, as professionals and say, well, I know there's some bias in this process. Let me see how I can use my critical HRD lens to help bring a more equitable situation than this process allows for. And that's kind of where that human intervention piece comes in yeah yeah yeah, yeah that, that helps a lot the i'm thinking of like a what, what's probably a common scenario for an hrd practitioner where they're likely to see um they're likely to see bias and the scenario that comes to mind is they're teaching a management development or a leadership development class in an organization and they sit there and they look around the room and what they predominantly see are white middle-aged men um, and presumably at that point, and they start asking why, then what they start looking at is what are the processes that have got us to this point, i.e. way back at the beginning, who did we hire Absolutely. and how did we hire those? And then when we've hired them at some point, we've promoted them. So what are the processes involved and the people involved in deciding who becomes a manager? And so there's a, a whole chain of events that would have led up to that point that an HRD professional could be challenging. That's exactly right, Darren. Um, and it is going back to looking at the organization as a system, right? Or even the HRD or the HR function as a system and recognizing that all these different components of the system build upon each other. And so you're absolutely right. We're all, <laughs> you know, you're sitting in that leadership development course and you're looking at the people who are, are becoming managers or, or deepening their skill set there. And that is a product of who you've chosen to hire, who you've chosen to promote. And, and those are based on some type of process, selection criteria, that kind of thing. And so if you're wondering why the room looks like that, just as you said, you have to go back and look at what were the processes, procedures, policies that we used in order to get people in this room. Yes. The scenario that we're talking through there is a practical one taking place within organizations. And one of the themes of our podcast episodes has been the challenge of taking what we know from research and scholarship and applying that in the world of practice. And I'm wondering if you see that within critical HRD. In other words, do we have a better handle 
on critical HRD within scholarship than we actually have in the world of HRD practice inside of organizations? I think we are fairly in the infant stage of educating um, from a critical HRD perspective. And it does take time to kind of infiltrate <laughs> the industry, right? If you do it from an educational standpoint. Um, and so that is something that I would say we're up against. There's also, you know, the laws of physics, like the status quo is strong, Baron. Like yeah. if this is where we've been, it's really hard to change that. Um, my hope is that as we continue to educate, as we put, continue to put more HR and HRD professionals into the workforce that have a critical mindset, the more change we will see from that perspective. Now, and having said that, there's also the external environmental pressures as well that are going to help us facilitate this research to practice piece for critical HRD. So you look at the events of um, 2020 that really, and now 2021 for that matter, that really made our nation and the world at large look at some of the social inequities, specifically along the lines of races and ethnicities and socioeconomic statuses, um, those external pressures are, I mean, that's what's hashtagging these days. That's what's trending. And organizations are going to have to respond to that in order to stay relevant, viable. I think Laura used the word sustainable. Um, in an external environment that values social justice, right? That's one of the goals of critical HRD is to boost that social justice. And so if we have this piece where we are educating our HR and HRD professionals with a critical perspective, and we also have the environmental pressures that are pushing for more social justice, ultimately, I really think it's, it, giving that kind of situation, the organizations, the workplaces, they are going to have to change. And so I think that will help us push um, the critical HRD research to practice. Yeah. So hopefully we reach a point where organizations start reaching out to, to scholars to say, we have a practical, we have a practical problem here. How, mm -hmm. Um, how can we work together to to create a, to create a new normal, a new world? Absolutely, absolutely, and and we're seeing at least in my little little sphere of influence over there, over here, we're seeing some of that. Uh, where organizations are saying, "Hey, what do we do? How do how do we work? Uh, move the needle on this. Um, how do we work on this?" Right. Um, so, so that's the hope, absolutely, Darren, that organizations will start to reach out um, to the researchers and scholars to really know what works and to be able to implement those into their organizations. One of the things I like about the direction that you've taken there is that it makes me feel as if 
there's probably been a, a long period when HRD, particularly those who are involved in critical HRD, have been seeking change because it was the right thing to do. And therefore, the argument for org to organizations was you need to change. It's the right thing to do. Um, and I wonder whether what we're starting to move into or what we're actually already in now is an era when organizations accept it's the right thing to do, but they also see an economic benefit to it. Yeah, and I think um, there's been a lot of research that was kind of focused on that too. This idea of if we can make a business case for it, then more organizations will be on board with it. And so from an ethical stand, uh, point of view, you're kind of like, ah, oh, but it's also just the right thing to do. But then there's the piece that's like, well, if it gets, gets us to that social justice ideal, then you know, maybe it's okay that it had to be through this, um, kind of this other lens, other than something just the ethical right thing to do. Then for generations after us, you know, that's how they operate. That'll just be how it's done, you know, and that's that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, that's probably a, a wonderful picture to wrap up on um, and to launch us into the next segment of the episode when we'll bring you together with Laura and Carol. But before we before we start that uh, segment, I do want to say a big thank you to Mika for, for joining us and for our one-to-one -one chat. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. This has been great, Darren. Up next, we have the group discussion where my guests are together to discuss their shared passion for the episode's topic. This discussion is brought to you thanks to the sponsorship support of Interpretive Simulations. Since 2008, students and trainees have used Interpretive Simulations HR Management Simulation, where participants are tasked to make challenging decisions at the HR director level in a simulated environment. Students must build a strong HR function at their simulated medium-sized organization and wrestle with the challenges of staying on budget. The simulation makes the connection between concept and practice, while students learn by doing. It comes with assignments, mini-cases and quizzes to reinforce core HR principles. If you'd like to receive faculty access to review the HR management simulation, visit them at www.interpretive.com and fill out a demo request. Welcome back to the HRD Masterclass podcast. As you know, our focus for this episode is critical HRD. And I've already met one-to-one -one with Laura Beamer, Carol Elliott, and Tamika Greer. And for the final section of the episode, we're all together for our group chat. So welcome back, Laura, Carol, and Tamika. Thank you. Thank you, Darren. I'd like to start by asking you all about how someone listening can take the ideas you've talked through earlier and act on them. Essentially, how does someone do critical HRD? So for me, critical HRD can be evidenced in behavior of organizations. And I think a good measure is well-being, putting people first. So for example, uh, CEO Dan Price, he is the person who gave a minimum wage of $70,000 to every single one of his employees at Gravity Payments. 
And I think this was three years ago. And he took a, a cut in his $1 million salary. He cut it by 90% and uh, made sure everyone had a living wage. Well, a recent article actually just last week said that it has paid off, that um, they have tripled their revenue and they've had a 10 times boom in the homes that his employees have been able to afford. You know, I think with the pandemic, uh, nothing has revealed character like a crisis. And so there have been other companies that have required remote workers to install surveillance software. Um, three that have done well in the pandemic would be Basecamp, who made a policy of doing no surveillance of their employees working from home. Chobani, the yogurt company, has also put people first and had sh shown a lot of concern for families. I don't know if they would consider themselves critical, but they fit my definition because they're disrupting the status quo and creating well-being for all workers. One last thing I will say is that Iko Bathia, who is a coach and diversity expert, wrote an amazing article in Medium after the George Floyd murders about what corporate America can do to really be serious about addressing racism and diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that to me is a list of must do things if you really are working from a critical perspective. Maybe we can put a link to that article in the podcast. We definitely can. Yeah, I mean, I was um, thinking about this as well. And I was thinking how many of the cases I uh, could reference were of organizations or or at the national policy level, whereby people have thought alternatively about a problem or situation, they've taken a different, a different approach to the solution, so they haven't just used the tried and tested methods. The example I thought of was the example of Norway, where they brought in um, quotas in order to ensure that at least 40% of any uh, board of directors in Norwegian uh, stock index listed companies had 40% women. And this was met with, the idea of this was met with great resistance. And lo and behold, despite the resistance, that actually that, that measure has spread across different companies in Norway. So it's not just stock index companies that we see an increased number of women on boards or increased diversity, in fact, but it, it really required that, that act of um, courage in a way from the government saying, no, we're going, to, we're going to insist on these quotas because they felt, you know, so many excuses have been made over previous years for not it increasing the number of women and not for making those boards more diverse that, you know, it reached a point where we almost have to push people to do it. What is key here is that when we are making decisions, when we are forging new paths in these organizations, we have to consider the perspectives of all of the people in the organization. And that's what these examples show. So we're not just looking at the key players. We're not just looking at who we deem to be the most quote unquote important talent, but we are considering, for example, the well-being or the human sustainability across the entire organization. And so this challenging of the status quo really comes from questioning and using our imagination. And so one of the ways that I teach even my students at the university to do this is what we call a magic wand question. And that is the beauty of, hey, guess what? There's no limits to what your imagination can picture for what our organization will look like, how we will achieve human sustainability. And in this perfect world of no restrictions and no limitations and all the resources you want, 
what would that look like? And we have to start with that vision of, you know, social justice in our organizations, equal um, access in our organization, equal treatment in our organizations, um, and ask those questions. What would it look like if we had no barriers and no resource limitations? Um, and then figure out what the obstacles really are. Why are we not there yet? If that's our vision, if that's what our imagination can picture, why are we not there yet? Clearly there's a mindset behind all of this, which requires a shift. I'm also wondering how much of it requires some power or influence i.e. the examples that Laura gave and Carol gave were examples of individuals who've got power because they're CEOs or governments who have power. What I'm wondering is if there's somebody listening who is sitting in an organization thinking, I don't have any budget, I don't have any power, I don't have that much influence. What would be your suggestions to that person that allows them to make change despite the fact they have no power? Even if you perceive you have no power, right? If there are conversations that you're ever a part of in that organization, if you talk to anybody, you can go back and lean on that power of questioning, right? And so maybe there is a situation, a new process or a new procedure that you, or policy that you perceive to be unjust or unfairly, uh, marginalizing people in the organization. Um, ask a question. Simply ask, you know, what were the decision factors in deciding to go this direction? That could be a question in a very informal setting that you can start to expose, even if you have no power, you can at least start to expose some of the assumptions that were underlying these decisions that led to the inequitable practices. Yeah, I like really like that um, idea, Tamika. And also, I think another point I would add was in voicing those questions, you suddenly may realize it's not just you who's thinking this. You know, sometimes we feel as though it was just me or perhaps I've misunderstood or um, you know, we sometimes do ourselves a disservice by assuming that we, or perhaps I don't know enough, or, or they must know because they're higher up the organizational hierarchy than me. But sometimes those questions that come from that place of curiosity and you, you might find your allies in asking those questions that you didn't know you had. I also think that um, affinity groups or networks are quite popular, you know, where you might have a Black employee group or LBGTQ or women, these groups can be strategic by inviting in power. So if you have a Black employee resource group, invite white people into the group. Uh, women should invite men executives not to teach them, but to listen and learn. And so those kinds of moves also start the conversation. And I think that as much as we like to think about diversity and inclusion, as Marilyn Bird notes, that we have to be willing to talk about exclusion and injustice in organizations, which is never as comfortable, but to really develop that comfort and having difficult conversations. Each of you, as, you, as you've talked in different ways, have referenced the status quo but presumably there are often factors at play that are sustaining the status quo. I'm interested in 
what factors, what those factors typically are. And when you take a look at, at examples in organizations, what do you often see is sustaining that? Well, I can be blunt and direct about this. White supremacy and patriarchy, for starters, you know, homophobia. I think that power is you know, usually held by white men of Western descent. If you look at a lot of organizations and these systems of power work to keep the powerful in power. And uh, those who don't look like the CEO, assuming a white male, uh, will have few opportunities. And so until we really begin to understand how organizations systematically and systemically discriminate and change those policies and structures, we won't see change. And do you feel that those are in play explicitly, i.e. individuals know that their systems, their processes, their procedures are racist or homophobic, or, or is it that they have never examined that? And so th their eyes need to be open to it. I think that I'm actually hesitant to say that all of the, you know, hegemonic groups in these organizations are um, consciously aware of the inherent uh, racist and sexist nature of many of the things that go on in our organization. But I do think they're aware of the outcome and the results. So they know that they have it good, right? Things tend to work in their favor professionally, um, but they, I don't think they would say it's because this is uh, inherently racist or sexist that I get to benefit and hold everybody else down. Yeah, I think it's often, you know, the, the excuse or the reason for racist, sexist policies, et cetera, or hiring practice are, well, you know, that's the way we've always done it around here or um, but we know we're using these frameworks, we're using these competency frameworks to assess the people that come through the door, but um, they're perhaps not, you know, diving in more deeply to understand the assumptions upon which these processes and structures are built. And or they, or they can get quite defensive about those, uh, what they might see as accusations of, of hiring practices, if we use that example, that are inherently biased in some way. So much of that is embedded so deeply in the culture. Um, and that's, you know, culture outside the organization in society, as well as cultures within the organization to the point that it becomes just a people that are not um, oppressed by these systems are blind to, often blind to those who are. And it is because they, hey, it works, you know, it works for me. Well, and I, I think that Tomika, when she talked about awareness uh, or consciousness is important. And uh, I'm reminded of some work I did early in my career on gender consciousness development. And um, from that research, I found that really two elements were required is first of all, the level of awareness and then whether or not um, people are willing to take action. 
And so, um, first of all, if you're not aware, there is no going to, not going to be any change. And I agree that when you are in power, you have the least awareness of the privilege that it brings you. So uh, women and uh, people of color, for example, are going to see it much more readily when they notice who's getting promoted or opportunities in their career. And uh, interestingly, how it worked though, is um, for example, I, I found it, an anomaly of executive women who were highly aware of uh, gendered power relations and were unwilling or unable to take action. And um, I called them consciously unconscious. Um, and I think sometimes we do make decisions for whatever reasons to not speak up and take action. And actually people who have awareness and the willingness to take risk and action are quite rare. Um, and so I think for, for me is how do we help that group uh, mobilize into more action in organizations um, to help educate ourselves and become more conscious of inequity. Can I add just one more thing when we were talking about factors that sustain the status quo? Another one is really this idea of not, not being transparent <laughs> about how these decisions are made or how processes, structures are put into place and why we keep them there. And that also I think is a power move in that these things often happen behind closed doors with just a few people in power. And we don't necessarily have checks and balances that look at, critically look at whether or not these are equitable fair practices or not. Um, and so that trans non-transparency, I think is definitely one of those factors. And Laura was kind of talking about this too, that holds the status quo in place. When we get down into more transparent practices, we see um, equity and inclusion opening up a lot more. Generally, then, part of the challenge to individuals who are asking the questions that you're encouraging to, them to ask, part of that challenge is not only, not only are they pointing at bias within systems and processes, they're also pointing at individuals who've benefited from those and opening their eyes to the fact that they have benefited from privilege. And that presumably puts those individuals in a challenging position. Um, yeah, there will be resistance to that because, you know, as the points that Tamika and Laura have already been making this, if you are a beneficiary of bias, then, yeah, it's, other things have to come into play in order for those people to shift, um, shift how they view the world or support structures, mechanisms, perhaps need to, we need to consider those in order to, move things along otherwise we just reach an impasse where um you know we just shout over the wall at each other and we don't get very far because those people who've you know are aware of the biases perhaps have pointed these out and possibly in a very polite and gentle way but the, that message is that there will be resistance to that message so I think when people in power in organizations become more aware of the inequities that are present or inherent uh, within the organization, you, you can really have one of two responses. So either that person is apologetic about it, 
realizing that maybe he or could be a she um, has unfairly benefited from some of the bias in the organization, or you could have an unapologetic response where it's kind of like, well, I worked hard to get here and anybody can do it just like I did, which is far from the truth. Um, and so I think when you have an apologetic, a person with an apologetic response, that's your potential agent for change in the organization. That is a person that may be inspired and have the power to then mobilize um, to change some of the inequity in the organization. Whereas the unapologetic response could potentially become a resistor, a person who sticks firmly to the status quo. And maybe that's out of fear because they do realize maybe that they've benefited unfairly. Um, or it could just be that they really don't believe that that bias exists in the organization. So I think depending on that response, you could either have an agent for change, which I would capitalize on as a critical HRD person, or a resistor, which I would then um, identify ways that um, maybe we can still affect change without necessarily having that person's buy-in. Yeah, I think leadership development has to change. And um, as I mentioned, the uh, Iko Bethea article, which is so good, is one of the suggestions is that we shouldn't have DEI training, diversity, equity, and inclusion. It should be leadership training. You know, like that, you know, if leaders aren't learning how to be inclusive and just and um, make the workplace sustainable for everyone, then they maybe shouldn't be leaders. Well, throughout the discussion, I think you've given all of us listening uh, a lot of things to think about and a lot of areas to act on. Um, as a final question, I'm wondering what hints and tips you have for listeners who have heard that and want to learn more about critical HRD? I'm sorry I'm going to say this because it sounds so academic, but I think um, for me, it's always been about um, kind of reading more and reading from different perspectives. And that might, you know, might be something that is, you know, we categorize as pleasure and not work, but, you know, reading all, about uh, other people's lives and experiences can be a start as well as reading about theory and how theory can give us lenses to make sense or to understand a situation in a different way. And to build on what Carol said, um, the affinity groups that Laura mentioned earlier, so get involved in an affinity group that maybe you don't necessarily identify personally with that particular group. Um, and that is one way to learn different perspectives as well. Um, and to kind of understand, hopefully get an awareness and an understanding of what it might be like to be um, part of that group. So what their concerns may be, what their fears may be, what their triumphs may be um, to give that that different perspective, yeah. And uh, there's a, an advances issue that came out a few years ago, uh, an edited volume on critical HRD, and there's multiple articles and book chapters. Um, I also am going to uh, say that uh, Tamika, Carol and I are collaborating with Jamie Callahan and Josh Collins on an HRD textbook that um, will be written from a critical perspective and uh, to offer 
really tangible practices for uh, HR professionals who want to make mindful and timely responses to these difficult issues in organizations. Carol has also, I believe, co-edited um, at least one book related to critical HRD. And I think that her book on women's leadership with Valerie Stead is one of the best examples of how to think about um, a topic from a critical perspective. So it's, it's on my bookshelf as my go-to leadership book. Well, we've reached the end of our time for today. A big thank you to all three of you for our conversations. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. And so thank you so much for being a part of our discussion on critical HRD. Thank you, Darren. And thank you, Tamika and Carol. Yes, this has been fantastic. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, everybody. It's uh, always, always creates more ideas for me to pursue. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. It was wonderful spending time with Laura, Carol and Tamika. If you enjoyed the episode, check out our others to explore topics such as training and development, learning organisations, career development and much more. New episodes release weekly for this first series of 10 episodes. To learn more about the series, check out hrdmasterclass.com and to learn about the Academy of HRD, check out ahrd.org. By becoming a member, you can access extra bonus materials not included in the podcast. And don't forget to look into our group discussion sponsor, Interpretive Simulations, by visiting their website at interpretive.com. I'm looking forward to being with you in our next episode. Until then, this is Darren Short, signing off from the HRD Masterclass. HRD Masterclass Podcast is brought to you by the Academy of Human Resource Development and is a production of allbypodcast.com.